Welcome back to The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dana Svedan, Dr. Saba's producer. This episode is part of our What Plants Crave series, where Dr. Saba speaks with growers, researchers, and other experts in controlled environment agriculture to get their insights about the direction of the industry and, of course, what exactly it is that plants crave. On today's episode, we're talking to Jeremy Schechter of Bickle Consulting, which does cannabis cultivation and business consulting. Before that, Jeremy worked with Buckeye Relief as a Director of Cultivation and Vice President of Operations. Thank you for listening. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Dr. Nadia Sava, President of Dr. Greenhouse and host of The Doctor Is In. Welcome to our special series, What Plants Crave. Today's guest is Jeremy Schechter, Director of Cultivation at Bickle Consulting and formerly the Director of Cultivation at Buckeye Relief, one of the few licensed indoor medicinal cannabis cultivation facilities in Ohio. Hi, Jeremy. How are you? Good, Nadia. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's so great to have you on our What Plants Crave podcast series. Uh, I'm really excited to learn more about you, um, about the plants you grow, and the quirks of growing medicinal cannabis indoors or, or any other crop for that matter. So first, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, what got you interested in horticulture and growing plants in the first place? So at first, I wasn't interested in horticulture at all. I started out as a wastewater guy, transitioned into a uh, a love for fishes and uh, aquaculture. And then uh, my senior project in college actually got me introduced to aquaponics, which I'm looking forward to talking a little bit about today. Um, and that kind of developed uh, a love for plants and the unique challenges they have behind them. So, you know, after college, I worked in greenhouses, designed aquaponics systems, uh, helped people set up their, their grows for, you know, three or so years. And then, uh, came and I'm, I was at Buckeye Relief for uh, almost four years, kind of started on the ground floor, worked with them on designing all their, their grows and their cultivation equipment and putting all that together. And then eventually ended up running the cultivation team and then uh, subsequently took over more and more departments, everything from cultivation to post harvest and trimming to packaging to doing a whole bunch of other stuff on top of that. So have seen a lot of challenges and tackled a lot of problems with with all of that stuff but yeah horticulture is just really fun it, there's always problems and challenges <laughs> I mean why why how did you get roped into cannabis um, I mean if you're a fish guy I know you did a little bit of work with anaerobic digestion and, and waste streams why cannabis cannabis is one of the most interesting phenomenon of our of this generation, it's um, like, obviously it's like well-capitalized and stuff. And there's a lot of people looking into it and doing research and stuff, but it's just like a big unknown. So what it is, is just, you know, we haven't researched the plant like we have tomatoes or cucumbers or peppers over the last 30, 40, 50 years. So our, it's our generation's job to really figure out how to grow it, what it takes, the best way to scale it and get the cost down. So I thought that it is um, probably similarly to you that it's a uh, horticulture is an interesting engineering challenge and uh, cannabis takes it a few steps further, I think. Yeah. So all of my all of my past interests have been 
interesting engineering challenges and this one happens to be the most fun. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I didn't necessarily set out on my path in controlled environment agriculture to grow cannabis or help people grow cannabis, but it is really exciting because it's totally new territory. We don't have the research and science background like we do with so many other horticultural and floriculture crops. Um, And so we all get to kind of learn and develop this industry together. And, you know, even my introduction to the industry five or six years ago, um, going to my first conference, uh, I was really impressed with just the community of cannabis and, you know, the, the people who are growing it and why they were growing it, you know, it really came from a place in the heart, um, it seems like. So that was definitely interesting for me. I really liked that. Why are people growing cannabis indoors? Why not grow cannabis out in a field or in a greenhouse? I mean, one of the things that sort of that I think about is that cannabis is sold as a dried or extracted product. So why can't we just grow it in the field and somewhere uh, in the summer and the fall and harvest it in the fall and then store it and then sell it throughout the year? Why, why are we growing it indoors? Well, people certainly do all of the above, especially in climates that you can. You know, we'll probably talk about what it looks like in the future. And I think we're actually going to see a lot more outdoor production in the future as the price per pound goes down across the country. But um, that's exactly it right there is, is the price per pound. And uh, I mean, people grow indoors for um, consistency, quality, and repeatability. So just maximizing yields. And, uh, and candidly, there's, of course, the regulatory stuff about it being inside. It has to be secure, uh, preventing odors from getting into, so basically being a good neighbor. So that kind of stuff is written into the regulations, but a more pragmatic reason is simply just grow, growing indoors allows you to have the best control over your environment and uh, have that quality and consistency and repeatability for such a uh, high value crop. Does medicinal cannabis require more regulation than recreational cannabis and in, in the quality of the final product? Uh, I would say it varies by state. There are states that have higher testing requirements for recreational than medicinal. Um, I don't, I don't understand why, but that that is how it is. So it it definitely varies, and even you know medical market to medical market uh, varies substantially on what they test for as far as microbial loads or pesticide contaminants. Uh, people just are not on the same page. Testing labs are not on the same page. There's no like uh, singular framework that determines. Um, that kind of quality. Hmm. Do you see that similar level of scrutiny or requirements with say aquaculture? Um, aquaculture is a totally different beast. And I mean, aquaculture is governed under um, the USDA and, you know, the food safety stuff. So it's, it's a totally different, totally different okay. beast, but certainly, you know, food is not required to be tested nearly as much as medical marijuana is or recreational marijuana, like the batch sizes are so infinitesimally small compared to what needs to be tested in a food production facility. I think people would be surprised to know that um, the lab testing requirements for cannabis are greater than those for maybe the lettuce uh, or carrots or tomatoes that they eat. It's, yeah, it's shocking. substantially greater. It's, it's pretty wild. And the, and the thresholds are much lower too. Like, uh, like for example, in Ohio, every 15 pounds of marijuana needs to be tested. 
Um, and when you're talking commercial facilities, that is a large amount and half of 1% of that batch has to get destroyed in order to do the testing. Wow. So, I mean, you're talking tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, just going to testing costs. Wow. That's amazing. Product, yeah. Why is that? I mean, why, why does it have such high requirements? I, I think just because it's, <laughs> Maybe I mean, you don't it's have just the answer. I, I don't know. It's, it's par for the course. I can't speak to the regulators. <laughs> so what are the biggest challenges of growing indoors? So you mentioned some of the benefits, but yeah, what as, as a grower or an operator, what are some of the day-to-day challenges you face um, or overarching challenges of, of growing cannabis indoors? Well, it kind of goes back to the benefits. So it's uh, a double-edged sword having all the control. If you have control over everything and you're providing everything the plant needs, then you also have control over everything. And if you mess something mm-hmm. up, that's on you. It's not. Um, so you've, everything's got to be totally dialed in. And when you're working indoors, um, you know, you're not getting light from the sun. So all of your light is based on mechanical systems. Your HVAC is mechanical systems, your irrigation. Um, if you're not hand watering is mechanical systems. So you're just really relying on machines and computers and, and people to be doing the right things at all times. And the reality is that stuff breaks. And that's something that I have to talk to new clients and other growers all the time when, uh, especially owners of companies when that haven't been in agriculture and really explaining to them, like, you've got a lot of equipment here. Most, if not all of it will break at some point. And uh, there's always problems to deal with always. So that's, it's always a hard pill to swallow, but after I feel like somebody has been running a cannabis or really any kind of horticulture facility, they get it after a few years, yeah. no matter how good you are, stuff's going to break. And that's just how it is. So <laughs> I would say, I would say it's, it's the absolute dependence on those types of systems. That's the biggest drawback that and the re- reliance on high skilled technical staffs to run it. Mm. So indoor growing um, is not something that can typically be run by uh, somebody with a non-technical background. At Buckeye Relief, so I'm an engineer. I was running all the technology at first. We've got somebody who's got master's in horticulture, another person with a master's or a horticulture degree and a computer science degree, a few more engineers, someone who studied and cataloged like DNA and genetics. I mean, all that stuff's probably overboard for what you typically do for an indoor grow, but there's just a lot that you need to know. Um, if you're, say, the director of cultivation of a growing facility, you need to know how to manage people. You need to know how the environmental control systems work, be able to troubleshoot those kinds of systems. You obviously need to know basic like botany and horticulture skills, good data keeping skills. That's one of the things that people tend not to be great at. And what I see as stumbling blocks in facilities is just really poor data keeping and data tracking and analysis. And so you got to, I mean, do you train people to, to do that? Or um, if they can't do it, do you give them a different job to do that maybe isn't so data heavy or, or can you get away with not understanding how to analyze and collect data? In this industry. I mean, anybody can get away with it. It's just going to be the quality of the facility that they're running and, and what they can output. But the data capture and analysis is the only way really looking at those data points is the only way to evaluate where your bottlenecks are and your wastes and loss of efficiency and, and stuff like that are. So you can't really optimize too great without excellent data tracking. 
Um, it doesn't matter how good uh, you are subjectively at, at growing the plants if you if you can't look at it quantitatively. So to answer your question directly, it's just a game of identifying people's strengths and putting mm-hmm. the right people in the right positions. But at Bickle Consulting, we do work really hard to train um, our clients and the growers on how to track the data, help them set up Excel spreadsheets at a minimum or implement stuff in ERP systems um, to make everything smooth and easy. You know, I've heard other growers say that one of the biggest bottlenecks to their growth is finding that skilled staff uh, and experienced staff. And, And I wonder if that's why we see a lot of movement within horticulture in general. Like some, some growers will come from cannabis and go to more traditional horticultural growing tomatoes. And some people leave tomatoes and come to cannabis. And there just seems to be like this continuous swap and turnover happening within the industry as people sort of are shuffling around, trying to find the right fit, find, trying to find the right skill set, trying to find the right company to work for with their skill set. Do you see that bottleneck loosening up recently, or is it still hard to find people to work in these facilities? It is absolutely hard to find people working in these facilities because, you know, even as it's loosening up, cannabis is one of the fastest growing industries in the world. So uh, maybe as there's more applicants and more qualified talent, they get eaten up really fast. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. It's much easier to find and train like the lower level people and work them up through the company is typically what cannabis companies do anyways. But right off the bat, finding that strong, capable talent to start a facility or to come into an existing facility and really take over and like guide those SOPs within, that's probably the the toughest part. Actually, this might be a little more candid than it needs to for this session. But when I first started in the horticulture industry, I picked up a a copy of the greenhouse grower magazine yeah. and this one happened to be like their industry guide for for salaries and what you should expect in the horticulture industry mainly like floriculture and i mean i was scared because it was saying that greenhouse managers and stuff after like five or 10 or 20 years of experience whatever it was would average around like 40 or fifty thousand dollars a year oh, yeah. and i was like Oh, oh my gosh, these jobs are so late, so low paying for such high skill and experience. And so luckily what the cannabis industry is bringing, just like it's bringing capital to all these equipment parts of the market, it's actually providing an incentive for these students getting out of college with, you know, carrot at the end of the stick of like, hey, look, if you do really good in this field, you can actually make, you know, six figures and potentially have equity and like all of these things. So it's, it's a much greater incentive, hopefully now for people to actually pursue horticulture if they wouldn't before because of the typically lower pay. Yeah. I wonder actually how that's proliferating or not through other traditional horticulture jobs and positions in whether it's in vertical farming or whether it's, you know, in, in a multi hectare greenhouse production facility. I wonder if cannabis is helping to elevate everybody's salaries uh, across the board or, or if you can really only find a good paying job in cannabis, do you know? I mean, there's, I would say that that greenhouse grower magazine wasn't as accurate, you know, knowing um, a bunch of people who work at like very large greenhouses growing orchids or vegetables. um, They do, they do fine. So I I think it might've been generally talking about the smaller ones, but I I would think so because now these larger greenhouses have to compete with these 
high tech vertical grows and stuff that can absolutely pay pay uh, their employees a little bit more. Yeah. So you brought up data. So I want to kind of jump to that question about metrics and and as a grower, what is important for you to to measure and monitor and control? What are you looking at specifically? What's the are, you know so, what? What's the bare minimum? <laughs> Well, the bare minimum, and I, I helped, uh, or I contributed to an article uh, on like the state of the, the lighting industry for, I think it was Cannabis Business Times. And uh, they, they shared with me their data and I was so alarmed by it. It was like, one of the stats is like 74% of people are collecting temp and humidity data. And I, th- I think I wrote What's like- What's the other 26%? Yeah, like, what are these other people doing? <laughs> Well, I will tell you what they're doing. I have a client and the grower, he literally walks into a room, feels it and decides it's too hot or too cold and then changes the thermostat setting. (laughs) See, it's, and this isn't me like on a high horse or anything like trying to talk down, but it's just like these days are over. Um, I I think that, uh, you know, this conversation, um, I'm only mainly focusing on like, like commercial growing and the future of commercial growing and stuff like that. And it's stuff like this, the subjective nature on that and writing positive words on water tanks and, and all this stuff like that stuff is coming to an end and we're moving to an era of high tech growing where yes, an entry level is you're monitoring your temperature, your CO2, your humidity, monitoring your growing medium, you're validating your, the supply of water that's going out for the pH and EC and you're testing your water at a lab and, and all of this stuff just to validate that at a minimum, you have good environmental controls. I, I was at a grow maybe a year ago and they had killed an entire room of their plants, you know, 99% killed, like they were hanging on by a thread. And it took them an entire week to figure out that one of the pH probes on their irrigation machine had was just on the fritz which means that there was no validation on the water coming in. And uh, candidly, that is just poor management. And something like that should should never happen or not be found in more than 24 hours. So constant monitoring and having a good team knowing what they do and being able to do that repeatedly is important. I want to talk to one specific variable that's way more interesting than the others. And this is kind of absent of discussing like, business metrics like yield. And, and I, yeah, yeah. I do want to talk about that. But uh, the, the coolest metric is carbon dioxide. It is, it is the only thing to monitor that's actually controlled directly by the plant. The plant, as long as you're recirculating the air in an indoor grow, um, the plants are actively, it's a pull system. So the plants pull it and then you bring more in. Everything else is a push system. We're trying to push more light in and maybe the plant can uptake it. So what we were doing at Buckeye or starting to do was calculating exactly how many pounds and you know how many cubic feet of CO2 would go into each round because you can't put more in than the plants will take out. Kind of trying to judge that against different variables that we would incorporate in the rooms, maybe, maybe raising the lights a little lower or it's just a really cool way to run experiments because you can see almost in real time the effect of, of those variables on the plants by the CO2 levels. So, I mean, can you share a little bit about what you found? I mean, if you were injecting CO2 into the room at the same rate and you didn't change anything, 
you know, you, you weren't, you weren't modifying it to maintain a, a, a concentration, but you just kept introducing the same amount. If you increase the light level or if you increase the temperature level, could you actually see the CO2 level drop because the plants would be assimilating more? Well, we wouldn't do that. We would actually take, cause we, uh, you know, and typically with these big ball tank installations, it runs through the piping into uh, a flow meter that you can control what the SCFM is. Mm -hmm. So we would be able to calculate out the volume of CO2 that goes out. So we could see like on different days, we didn't actually like run the experiments. It's something that I want somebody to do, but we just <laughs> haven't done it. But it, it is pretty cool. Like, um, you know, if you're, if you're running like a pest spray um, or you're spraying like a foliar on the plants and you turn down the lights, that number of like how much volume of CO2 you're putting in the room drops off substantially because the lights are lower. So you can almost see like the photosynthesis in real time as you decrease wow. the lights and so on. So it's, it's really interesting. At what we did actually use it for one practical purpose, which was there were a couple rounds for a time our yield was going like this. And then for a couple rounds, it kind of dropped. And uh, so we did look at the CO2 for those rounds and see how it compared. And as you would expect, like the CO2 dropped substantially. So we could have probably used that as a prediction or an indicator mm -hmm. that the yield for those rooms would be lower, um, you know, was that eight weeks before the plants actually get harvested or um, are sold? So do you think that carbon, is carbon dioxide more important to enrich during veg or flower or, or is it equal? Well, it's going to be the limiting factor in, in photosynthesis if you don't. So I think that it's just finding the spot where uh, it's just raising it and seeing if your plants are consuming more and then if not dropping it back off. Hmm. So that's, that's one thing that you can do too, is if your level's too high or if you keep bumping up your level and then if the amount of volume that you're putting in there doesn't increase, then that's the highest you need to put it. Got it. You've hit your threshold at that point. Yeah. 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 I mean, have you played with different well, I mean, you, you mentioned lights, um, that when the light level was lower, you used the CO2 went down the amount of CO2 that you use. Have you ever played with that correlation with temperature? No. Okay. Um, so we've, we've tried, uh, several temperature experiments, but kind of what it comes down to, um, and what, uh, I always had to kind of wrangle in, um, running a production facility. Cause that's what these are is it's always production first, research second, yeah. unless you have like a dedicated R&D area. So it's always gathering data and optimizing, but running like large scale experiments on, on rooms is a lot of work and can be a lot of risk sometimes. So we didn't do anything like that. We found, you know, our, the good temperature set points for the genetics that we were running in the rooms okay. and then pretty much stuck with them because there, there are so many levers to pull like irrigation or temperature or um, you know, like stressing the plants with changing the VPD and the transpiration rates and stuff like yeah. that. So um, yeah, did not do a, a large scale study on that. So you, you mentioned earlier about the facility that had the, the busted pH sensor. Um, and you said, you know, they should have caught that within 24 hours, but it took them a week. So as someone who manages and, and monitors data, 
how frequently do you recommend growers are checking their sensors and checking their you you know their data screens and and just kind of spot checking or, or monitoring what's going on in their space is that like a daily activity multiple times a day is someone always sitting in front yeah. of the screen well kind of it kind of follows uh you know there's different categories so of course like at a, at a minimum you Every single grower who runs a high-tech facility like this needs to have a preventative maintenance schedule on all of their stuff, which means calibrating their probes and maybe checking solenoids and checking filters for clogs and stuff like that. That's pretty basic. But then checking the most important variables, what I uh, will set people up with and what we had at Buckeye was... uh, this actually came from the wastewater industry because it's super simple. I, I actually spent uh, a few months as a licensed wastewater operator. Oh my god! And gosh. you're basically getting, <laughs> <laughs> believe you're it not, or not afraid of getting dirty, basically. No, um, <laughs> cannabis facilities smell a lot better than wastewater. I'm sure. Maybe <laughs> um, hey, hey, that's what so, we could do with the odor from a cannabis facility. We could spray it over a wastewater treatment plant. Yeah, perfect. Right. I was like poop and weed. <laughs> um, so, yes. Yeah, so as, as simple as it sounds, um, it's re- one of the most important things that a wastewater operator does. He's got both like a checklist of things that that person needs to check however many times a day, but then also a computer screen to check. Both the physical and computer things are super important to check the physical things in a cannabis facility being there should be supply jugs for at least every zone, at a minimum every room, but every zone where you can test and validate the volume of the water coming out. And then just a spot check with a, a handheld meter, the pH and the EC, so you can validate that that room was actually getting what you programmed the recipe to be. So that is daily, um, including weekends uh, without exception. All the equipment in the mechanical or fertigation or water room, whatever you want to call it, needs to be checked daily. That means gauges and water pressures and um, stock tanks, making sure things are working and filled. Uh, That has to happen daily on week, including weekends. But then some other things that don't really need, well, and certainly like environmental parameters and not necessarily the instantaneous, but the graphs of like at least the previous 24 hours to make sure nothing crazy happened at night or something. But then uh, monthly, uh, weekly, each room should have like a full environmental audit done for, you know, making a grid of, you know, maybe two dozen points to take air, um, temp and humidity readings at to really? check if there's like dead spots and things. So uh, why weekly? Why does the, that need to happen weekly as opposed to like on a per cycle basis, per harvest cycle basis? Because uh, specifically with cannabis, they are not the same size for the first five weeks. So, I mean, really, uh, the last three weeks, it probably doesn't need to happen. But, you know, in that first, really, they'll stop growing at like week five. But the first, they'll, they'll, they double in size during that time. So it can really throw off airflow and can create dead spots. Uh, it's really important to know when that stuff happens. What do you do if you find a new dead spot? Do you change a diffuser? Do you put a fan up? What What do you do? Uh, I guess it just depends on the facility and what tools they have available to them. Um, a lot of uh, grows will have like uh, fans with variable speeds or adjustable fans to move them a little bit or just moving a floor fan in to kind of break up that dead spot. 
Um, but at a minimum, even if you do nothing, being able to track that and share that information with like the plant health team um, or the IPM team, because then having that information tracked, if, you know, maybe uh, you have some product that fails or you find bud rot in it, or maybe a spot of powdery mildew or, you know, some pest, you can at least track that down and like pinpoint an environmental condition to fix mm -hmm. for the next round. So tracking that can really help expedite solving pest issues. Interesting. Have you ever um, had the experience where you just had the most amazing crop? It was a bumper crop. It had great, you know, THC levels or quality characteristics. And you're like, wow, we want to do that again. And how do you, you know, how do we repeat? How do we duplicate um, that same environment or that same watering schedule or whatever it is? Have you ever had that experience where you wanted to duplicate what you did on this harvest cycle and the next one and, and actually made that work? Yes, I, I went through the exercise of identifying that, um, but I, because like, like I said, there was a period um, and it was right before I left Buckeye. So unfortunately I didn't get to like actually um, implement it. The, ne yeah. the next director of cultivation did, but they actually track everything from cologne through veg to flower, through dry and cure and trim, like everything down the line to see what was different. Um, so that means like clone loss and uh, they actually score the roots on the clones and the culling percentages between stages and the genetic makeups. And uh, so we had this basically a straight line of yield increases over every harvest since the beginning because, that, you know, we're optimizing and improving things all the way. And then this sudden drop and that came back up and uh for every harvest, they would actually put together a harvest report that had, you know, every manager of each part, every technician would compile this stuff into a full harvest report that the heads of the department could look at and evaluate. And so we, we did that and we had, um, you know, a series of meetings with all these people. And what we ended up finding was when we had that yield drop, it was the very first harvest where we actually saw a bit of powdery mildew, like not like widespread, but we were powdery mildew free for a year and it was the first time. And so we actually went uh, pretty in depth. And so, you know, when you have powdery mildew, the first thing you need to do is control cultural practices, which means preventing um, cross-contamination between rooms. Nobody goes into a different room without showering or putting on an additional Tyvek suit over their scrubs. And then uh, increasing airflow. So that means spreading plants out more. So lower planting density on the tables and also harder prunes and defoliations so that there's better airflow and, and you don't have the moisture pockets. So what we actually found was it was that um, harder prune that we did um, actually caused the decreased yields. And then, really? uh, so mm -hmm. yeah, it was, it was uh, pretty clear and indecisive. So why do you um, think that is? Was there, were the plants too stressed because of that? Cause you would no, think just... that if you prune more that maybe you remove more foliage right that could get powdery mildew so so why would over pruning creek yeah uh, so we actually have run um full on like large-scale risky experiments on pruning methods and how hard or how how low to go and what we find with like exceptionally hard prunes and i'm talking like week two pruning everything up to uh, one or two nodes on each lead 
we get massive buds that way, but there's always a decrease in yield. So the harder you prune, you actually get a decrease in yield. So it's like, you know, it's like the, I'm trying to tie it back to like a sphere, like you, whatever. We, we got bigger buds, but overall less yield. And uh, that's what we found. Because generally. you have so more, fewer, is it because you have fewer bud sites? Yeah, like the sun is greater than the, by the leaves. So, so all of the energy just goes to that one big top bud. So you get this one massive bud as opposed to a bunch of smaller, medium-sized ones. Yeah, exactly. So huh. really the name of the game, you, you would have the highest yield period if you left every single bud site on there and whatever. Um, but you would be left with a tremendous amount of larf that just has to be sold as popcorn or, you know, maybe even trim if it's bad enough. So the whole name of the game when it comes to pruning is uh, a balance between eliminating all, all the larf and, you know, we kind of, we don't have any great scientific names for that, but the, the lower undeveloped buds and uh, leaving enough bud sites that are going to develop into good saleable buds um, and maximizing that. I mean, I love that you guys are doing this because you know, with tomatoes, it's, it is a very consistent cultural practice that is tried and true and has been developed over many decades across many international countries, right, that are growing greenhouse tomatoes that, you know, it's three leaves per truss site, right? And, right, and yeah. every greenhouse, tomato greenhouse manager knows how many leaves per truss. And, when I walk into cannabis facilities, I mean, they are all over the place. I mean, some have this sea of green and it looks like a jungle. I walk into your facility and it's like pristine and, you know, like it looks like there's a logic between about how many leaves are left on the plant, but there's not a lot on there. I mean, how, how close or how far are we to figuring out how many leaves per bud site we need? Well, Really far. And uh, we talked about this all the time. And uh, we talk about it with clients now. The problem is, is the breeding and the genetics are not like tomatoes. And uh, I think I think we talked about that, um, you know, a few months ago when you were in town. And it's such an interesting, it's such an interesting thing is that you, know, you mentioned the three leaves for trust. Well, those indeterminate uh, tomato types basically grow the same. Um, yeah, and they yeah, are all bred for that. And whatever, but you know, you get, and I was just joking with uh, one of my clients the other day, who's about to start up his facility. I was walking him through how pheno hunt works with seeds and why if you have 12 seeds in a pack, six of them are going to be dead because they're male. And the other three are going to be totally different from one another, or the, the six are going to be totally different from each other because the breeding has never been like as tight and strict as something like a, um a greenhouse tomato it just uh everything's so different even within the genetics so until you know we have some commercial variety uh cultivars um we won't be able to get to that point but once we do there will be um we actually did standardize methods for different genetics because we had a single phenotype that we were then propagating off of mm -hmm. so Within a facility, you can absolutely standardize pruning practices to the genetic. And then it's the same thing every time with that genetic because you can make it consistent and repeatable. But I'll tell you, Nadia, like that is a lot of work and it takes a lot of tracking. And I don't I'm, I'm not up here saying that like everybody could or should do that because it, it relies on uh, 
Buckeye had been has been so successful because of uh, you know, it wasn't really because of like the sophisticated technology. It came down to finding the right talent and the right people who could think of these problems. Um, and it's not me. It's it's the people that were working there um, and that were willing to tackle these problems and devote the hours and hours, hundreds of hours into into that. And so it it going back to that issue of of finding really great talent on the market. I it's, mean, it's tough. And what you're describing really is, is being able to apply the scientific method, right? Is that you try something and you observe and you repeat and you record and you repeat, you know, like it's, it's the whole thing. It's that you, you have the question or the idea, the hypothesis, and then you try something and then you have to follow through on that something, right? You have to like observe something and then, oh yeah, you have to write it down so that you remember what you did the next time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, and, and that little, change and 10 that, variables at the same time either. Right. Right. And that, and that thing that you said is you've got to write it down so you can remember it for the next time. That's a lot of little things to write down to remember it over a lot of little times. And that requires a lot of fastidious and meticulous tracking. And, uh, again, as like, you know, these, the owners of these facilities who, who aren't from agriculture and don't understand these might be different. They might see some more of these really technical positions as a cost of doing an optional cost of doing business. Like, Mm. Oh, you, you know, you're working in, in the facility. Maybe you shouldn't be running these experiments. Why are you not defoliating these plants instead? I, I, I've seen a little bit of that where it's kind of a, a lack of respect towards the, um, doing like in facility research and optimization, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping that changes. I mean, but, growing plants, you just plant a seed and put some water on it and it just grows, right? You would be amazed at how many people would not understand that being a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know it's, it's kind of sad, um, but I mean, Plants are growing all around us. And, you know, I think, you know, we take it for granted that they do need a little bit of care and attention, nurturing. You know, I I really have enjoyed talking to you about all these variables that affect the, the growth of the plant, the health of the plant. Do you consider, I want to ask you about efficiency. And what that means to you, because I feel like I talk to some growers and they go straight to labor efficiency and then other growers talk more about resource use efficiency, like energy and water and plastics and waste and things. What do you consider the most important efficiency metric um, and, and how can we improve efficiency of these facilities? Well, I think that's a really interesting question because there's probably not the best answer. I think that the most important efficiency metrics are the ones that have the highest impact on the bottom line for the facility and the ones that are that can actually be controlled. There, You can only control the efficiency of HVAC units and lights to a point uh, because of thermodynamics and um, so there's, you know, some diminishing returns on that. Water efficiency uh, for you in California is exponentially more important than it is for me next to uh, one of the largest sources of fresh water in the world by the Great Lakes in Cleveland. So uh, where water is pa- basically free, so we don't even have to think about it. But for 
so it, it's totally subjective. So that being said, um, what I definitely get the most excited about and is probably one of the lowest hanging fruits is, is um, truly, truly, truly labor efficiency and process efficiency. That, that was probably the biggest thing that I focused on, focused on at Buckeye Relief and uh, what I focused on in cultivation and in post-harvest and packaging and, um, and everywhere was uh, clearly just that all that means is how to do more with less um, and with less waste. So that looks like probably the biggest thing is just goal setting, making sure that people have uh, an expectation of the goals that they need to hit, whether it's um, plants that need to get defoliated that day or how much weed to trim to get an incentive or how much has to get packaged and having good production schedules and good management and forcing production schedules is the easiest way to get efficiencies. And uh, it's, it's fun too. Like as simple as it might sound, gamifying a lot of this stuff can be really fun and really successful. Um, at Buckeye Relief, the the very first harvest took four days to do. Now they're down to harvesting a double stacked room in one day, less than one day. I think the new director of cultivation has it down to like six or seven hours. What? Why? Yeah. What? What? How? Uh, slowly gamifying it over time and standardizing things and optimizing it and making it efficient. But that's adds three days to the flowering cycle, um, which has a direct impact on the bottom line. Wow. Also, it helps morale because you don't want to be clean, uh, harvesting a room for that long. It's just soul sucking. Mm. So th that's that's a real number. And even before the double stack, it got down to one day with uh, the same, if not less people wow. by those same efficiencies. Well, what do you mean by gamifying the harvesting? What does that mean? Um, well, setting goals or like kind of being fun. I mean, there were a couple of times where, uh, you know, we had like a really big defoliation ahead of us and it was like kind of coming down to the last day and we didn't want to work Saturday. So it was like, all right, if we can get this done today, everybody gets a crisp $50 bill. And then they're like, all right, let's go. And just like, you know, maybe that's not necessarily gamifying. It's just incentivizing it. But yeah. I just just trying things out in facilities. We tried uh, competitions, which wasn't great for our staff. They didn't love that. But I think it's just a lot of trial and error and what makes sense. I think what what it came down to was fostering a sense of like community and shared purpose and clear, clear, realistic goals set for each day. And then sl slowly increasing those goals over time. You, know, you don't want to move the goalposts too much, but you do want to move the goalposts to keep it, keeping the continuous improvement going. So, I mean, it's, it's a good segue into the next question, which is, um, I know while you were at Buckeye, um, I mean, you guys were using LED lights, uh, no problem, implementing, you know, pretty high tech HVAC system, multi-tier levels uh, growing in the flower space, not just in veg and clone. Yeah. I mean, what was that experience like? And I guess what, you know, for, for other growers who are considering LEDs or considering going vertical or, you know, are ready to invest in that, you know, better HVAC technology, what would you tell them about your experience with those technologies and techniques? Well, I'll talk about uh, Buckeye, but with uh, at Bickle now, 
pretty much 90% of the clients that we're working with, I think right now all the projects I'm working on, but one are double stacked LED grows, um, like large commercial. I'm talking, wow. you know, 50 to a hundred thousand square foot just in, in growing space. So they're, they're very large. And, uh, I think that, you know, this is a case of the industry just making it really easy. So when I was at Buckeye, we were kind of at the forefront in the beginning of this. Yeah. Well, in Ohio, so you're actually limited by room footprint of veg plus flower rooms. So the name of the game was actually maximizing your canopy within that footprint. And it didn't care if you went vertical. So if we went 20 stories, 20 levels high, you know, it as long as it was within that 25,000 square foot footprint. So what we did was we started on a single level, but with the ability to um, add a second level, and then we use mobile racking to maxim- to minimize aisle space and maximize the amount of canopy. And uh, then we went vertical to, of course, take advantage of that. But the industry's just made it really easy. Um, companies like PIP and IGE, they integrate with the trays and they sell the trays themselves. and the lights are made to go in that racking and then the lights like from, uh, you know, Fluence or SpecGrade or FOS or they're all made to go on in the vertical racking. So it, it all kind of just fits together like an easy puzzle. It's, uh, I mean, that's really good to hear because, you know, four or five years ago when I was working with clients and they were trying to decide on the racking system or the lighting system, I mean, some of the challenges that they were grappling with were, you know, should I pick a four foot light or a five foot long light or a three foot long light? And I want this rack, but it will only allow me to use a three foot light. So, you know, I I have to like rearrange the lights like this, but, you know, in other places it was a five foot rack. So then they had, you know, four foot lights in one direction and then another, you know, another one going perpendicular to that at the end. And I mean, just grappling with how to make those two components fit together was really paralyzing, right? For a lot of growers, because they might've wanted one rack system and one light system, but they weren't very compatible with each other. I mean, is it becoming more standardized, uh, these dimensions at least? I would say that it it has become standardized. Like it, it is there. It's Good. not even on its way. It is there. I mean, it's, the lights are made for the racks and the right, the racks are made for the lights. Like they, they partner together. Everything's getting standardized. Um, I think that both sides of those industries saw a great need for the integration and they just work together. Um, and people don't deviate outside of those. It's like uh, everything's set up in four by eight sections or some multiple of that so that a light is four feet and unless you have overhead lighting. So it's, it's really easy. And then um, the irrigation companies, the big ones being, uh, you know, we work with Swartz Systems up in Canada. I, I like to quote them on projects, uh, w- wonderful group to work with. Um, they'll provide, they work with these all the time so they can provide, you don't have to worry about like, oh, how am I going to get a hose over and it's got to move with these aisleways. It's, it's very simple. They do it all the time. So at Pickle, we just kind of tie all this stuff together. And of course, I've designed and managed these for so long now that, yeah, it's just become easy. I'm so glad to hear that. So a few months ago, you did a a webinar with me talking about, you know, creating a a clean environment for uh, your, your indoor farm. 
if you could just pick two or three strategies that a grower can employ, what, what would they be to keep their facility clean? No outside clothes ever, period. Gloves on plants, no gloves when not on plants. And three is uh, do not go in one room to another to another without changing or showering or putting on a covering. And four is washing your hands. With or <laughs> but, without gloves? <laughs> I mean, you're really supposed to uh, put hand sanitizer or wash your hands with gloves on because who knows what, but I've never gotten to that point. It's, okay, okay. I, I'm not that extreme. No, candidly, uh, you know, I get asked all the time by clients of like, you know, what are some uh, technologies that we can put into our grow to make sure that everything's clean and there's no contamination? And my first thought is always, whoa, whoa, we should not be thinking about these technologies yet because the technologies are a band-aid that allow for bad habits and bad behavior to form. Um, what you really need to focus on is cultural practices, having a facility that's set up to separate things like uh, shipping and receiving and packaging and processing from the like very, very clean and biosecure cultivation areas you know, where cardboard boxes that came from China are not going to enter into even the hallways that your cultivation area is in. Training employees how important it is to be biosecure and what that means, like not wearing scrubs outside or even into shipping and receiving, washing your shoes weekly. Um, I mean, there's so many small little rules of thumb, cleaning cleaning snips um, between so many plants and stuff like that. And there's, there's just so much. And so it, it's just, it's, it's all, it's 99% cultural, I, I think is cle- keeping a clean facility. I, I've go, I go to a lot of grows and uh, the very first thing I notice is whether or not they're clean, like their hallways, like if they've got like bits in the hallway or like, you know, plant debris or, you know, I've been to grows where there's just full on like dead bugs on the side of the, you can see like daylight coming in or there's, a door to the outside that goes right into a grow room or um, there's just like construction material that looks dirty, like piled up in the cultivation hallway. That's always, you know, one of the first things I'll say is that that needs to change immediately. Wow. Well, I I will say one, the thing I didn't hear you say is outside air and recycle all your air and don't bring in any outside air. Um, are you concerned at all about bringing in pests and pathogens from, you know, from the, from the outside through the HVAC system? Not really. I think most, most systems have adequate filtration to take on anything from the outside. So uh, as long as the air coming in through an economizer or whatever else is filtered. You have a MERV rating you recommend. Is it yeah. eight or 11? It, so uh, a MERV 11 minimum. And if the HVAC system can handle it, then I'll recommend a MERV eight filter followed by a MERV 13 filter to just really make sure that we're taking care of, of removing any of the particles. But MERV 11 is enough to remove mold spores. And that's what I find growers are most concerned about anyway. And, and plus, you know, just based on everything that you talked about, basically people are the vectors of these pests and pathogens more than anything yeah. else. Um, that if you had a recirculating system, but you had dirty people, you're just going to be recirculating all that dirty air. <laughs> yeah, it, it drives me crazy on like, uh, like large companies, like Instagram feeds and stuff. I'll see pictures of, 
people with their bare hands like grabbing a bud. I'm just like, do you know how dirty your hands are? You know where that hand's been? And you're having it touch this product that's getting lab tested? Absolutely not. Or people will be like walking their dogs in their grow that they're selling to dispensaries. It's oh, just, no. I mean, how dirty is a dog? You know, who knows where that thing's been? Um, I saw an Instagram post. I don't know. Maybe this was a year or two ago of a guy who was like, I don't know not wearing a shirt and, and like wearing shorts and a green and like a commercial tomato greenhouse. And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> like, stop that. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, well, thank you for, for talking about cleanliness um, and sanitation. I know that uh, people will be interested in your thoughts on that. So just a few more questions. I know that, you know, with your experience uh, and love for fish and, and aquaponics, how, I mean, why don't we see any cannabis aquaponics facilities? Or do they exist? Uh, they do. Um, there's, there's one in Canada that I was pretty impressed with a few years ago. I didn't personally go and see it, but I was impressed by at least what I saw online. It was green something. I can't remember off the top of my head. But there is a, actually a really good reason to not do aquaponics for cannabis. Well, first of all, I'm so glad that you're bringing up aquaponics. It's not every day that I even get to talk or think about it, um, but that is my one true love. And so if it ever becomes a thing and somebody wants to set up a large-scale aquaponics cannabis farm, I want to be a big part of that. Okay. But aquaponics, the fish basically just serve as a natural fertilizer source and bringing in some hopefully extra revenue from selling them uh, somewhere else, uh, which is important in, uh, or it's impactful for, you know, maybe a lower margin crop like lettuce or something like that, or, you know, small scale commercial. But when you're talking that each cannabis plant might be worth 500 to $1,000 each, and you've got thousands of plants at a time, the amount of risk that has to do with aquaponics and that type of natural system does not justify any reduction in cost of nutrients. Nutrients What's the risk? are not. So aquaponics has, uh, well, in aquaculture, you have basically a full like life safety system, which includes like mechanical and biological filtra filtration. And uh, both of those systems can fail. Just like we said earlier, stuff fails. Well, that stuff fails a lot. And that's a big reason why aquaculture, like recirculating aquaculture systems, RAS, which is what, what I really um, enjoy, I guess, they're not super popular because they're so risky because uh, aeration or oxygenation systems can go down and all the fish can die in an hour. The, you can kill the bioreactor that processes the ammonium to nitrite to nitrate and uh, kill all your fish really quick. And then you have, you remove all the oxygen from the water because you have such a high BOD demand. And then mechanical filtration can fail, whether you've got a bead filter, a drum filter, some kind of mesh net filter, or sedimentation filter, um, they can fail, they can overflow, et cetera. And you do not get the precision. So you're, you are not going to get the same yield. Um, you can't, uh, optimize your NPK ratios, your calcium magnesium ratios easily. You, you do have to supplement with some other things. Like it's pretty easy to supplement with, you know, Epsom salts for your mag, uh, magnesium and your sulfates. And you can do with iron too. 
but you can't really perfect your nutrient recipe. Then also most commercial cannabis is uh, done through drip irrigation and uh, running basically live biofilm, which naturally exists in an aquaculture system through drippers is just a huge, huge recipe for disaster. You're gonna have clogged emitters and dead plants all over the place. So you'd have to do it on a deep water culture system or a Beto buckets or like the big NFTs. And none of that uh, is really commercial cannabis. That does not sound easy for cannabis. (laughs) No, so all the chips are stacked (laughs) against it. Um, I would love to see it done, but they're, I mean, nutrients aren't even on the top three biggest costs for cannabis, like not even close. Is that where aquaponics makes the most sense? That's the idea and um, kind of the idea in the marketing of a more natural way to grow without, you know, artificial or inorganic fertilizers and stuff like that. Yeah. So there's, there's some branding that goes along with it, but I haven't seen any evidence that there's like dramatically increased yield or cannabinoid or terpene expression or anything like that. Has anyone figured out how to like concentrate the fish water into the nutrients that you could deliver to plants? Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of fish fertilizers. You can actually take like the solids that you remove and you can either aerobically or anaerobically kind of digest it in a mineralization tank. You can actually do it anaerobically in order to, uh, wow, I'm, this is, I had not prepared for this and I haven't thought of like the phosphorus cycle in so long and like, you're welcome. Well, anyways, without going into that, because I'm going to botch the science you can, but, but why would you, when you're at a commercial scale and you're just worried about again, indoor growing the consistency, consistency, repeatability, you really want to start with a clean slate of clean water, put in your nutrients and exactly where you have optimized them to be and give that whatever it is for each part of the cycle every single time. Otherwise, if you know, your nitrogen is slightly higher or your phosphorus is slightly like, and you're changing these variables, then you can't really file, follow the scientific method in how to grow these plants. So is the challenge the same for any plant that you're growing hydroponically or, or is it less so maybe for like lettuce because deep water culture would make more sense and maybe you don't need the same level of, of precision in your fertilizer? You definitely, you definitely are not going to have the same level of precision with, with lettuce. Not only do you not really need it because it doesn't have like the multiple life stages of vegetative versus reproductive and stuff, yeah. but lettuce needs to be cheaper to grow in order to be able to sell it competitively. So well, that's a good point. Yeah. Cannabis, uh, it requires precision in order to maximize those yields. Cause you know, a 1% yield increase can mean six figure returns in a, in one year. So in, in a decent sized facility. So it's super, super impactful and um, has a great ROI to, to do that kind of stuff. Also, you know, I, I cannot overstate the importance of not clogging emitters. Um, uh-huh. in, I, I highly recommend to people to run nutrient salts and like basic, like uh, tried and true, you know, uh, fertilizers instead of like the fish emulsion or teas and stuff like that. This is the last thing that you want in your irrigation system is biofilm forming. Cause if you can't get rid of it, that is dead plant after dead plant and maintenance issues and 
We've experienced it when we switched uh, water treatment technologies from ECA to ozone. Ozone's not great uh, at treating um, systems down, uh, like drip systems in the line, because it kind of off gases and dissimilates so quickly. And we were having so many clogged emitters and it was like the irrigation control team's worst nightmare. I don't even work there and I still joke with them about it today. Wow. Wow. And then that's part of the, I mean, I I like kind of coming full circle about like just having that staff that is paying attention and observing what's going on, you know, on one hand, looking at data, but also just walking around the room, right? Scouting the room and um, making sure that the your plants aren't wilting because they're not getting any water because a dripper is clogged. Yeah, I mean, kind of just to, to summarize that, most of these high-tech facilities really need kind of different special specializations of staff. So, you know, maybe some of them focus on, on pest control and, and monitoring that. And some of them focus on maybe the environment, the irrigation, some of them focus on the dedicated crop work. Um, so everybody's kind of got their thing and then they can all come together and, and solve problems. It's so amazing to think about each of those systems as a subset not just as different technology, but also the different skill set that would go into managing that technology and the outcomes from that technology. I feel like so many growers are trying to do all the things, right? I mean, that's one of the things as an HVAC engineer that I get concerned about is is specifying equipment that is overly complex because now I'm, I'm possibly asking the, the owner or not the owner, but the grower to be a facilities engineer. And all they, what they want to do is they want to play with nutrient recipes and pruning recipes and, and, and talking and, and singing to their plants, not tuning an HVAC system and changing out filters and trying to figure out why the compressors keep failing on them. <laughs> That's a, a funny specific uh, a thing and the compressor's failing. That's, uh, that one hits deep a little bit. I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> well, you're not the um, only one. So, yeah. yeah, unfortunately, right? I mean, and, and that's part of the problem is, I mean, these are complex systems. And if you don't have dedicated staff to those systems, then you're asking too much of, of the grower and of the operational team to, to do something that, you know, that they don't love or that they're not educated and experienced to, to deal with. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. Like you need those, those uh, specializations and you need some people dedicated to the pests and, you know, list, uh, list goes on and on, but really the, the person that ties them all together should at least have like a base knowledge and a fundamental knowledge and all of that, like, uh, you know, as a true head grower. And I think that's why it's so hard because you're asking somebody to be good at pest management and you're asking somebody to be good with nutrients and understand the HVAC and, um, understand the actual crop work and topping and pruning and, Mm -hmm. um, all of and also management and that and going back to what we were talking about earlier is the talent you know it's it's kind of interesting i've um not only in buckeye but in other growers i've met in other facilities meet so many people who maybe work in cultivation are amazing at knowing how the crop works um and and how the plant works and stuff but they have never been forced to or had to like 
uh, mix stock tanks or learn about the HVAC or develop a recipe uh, program or troubleshoot that kind of stuff. So they're totally uh, hamstrung on, on advancement until they can learn that stuff. Or maybe, you know, they don't have uh, technical knowledge. It's really hard to be a, a director of cultivation and not be very good at Excel, even yeah. if you're not in a technical facility, you know? I love that you brought up Excel. Yeah, just under, yeah, being able to organize data, right? And, and look at it in a different way. I'm just happy when uh, I'll I'll be happy when we've gone from 74 to a hundred percent of growers, just looking at temperature and humidity data that. Yeah. (laughs) So in, in all your years um, and experience in this industry, do you find that it is collaborative or competitive or kind of both? Well, this is a really fun question because um, and it's actually a really positive question because when I first got into uh, specifically cannabis, I had heard from everybody that, you know, everybody's so secretive and they have their own secret sauce and yada, yada, yada. And while that's true, there are a lot of people with egos out there. Um, I have not found that to be true in the industry. I have excellent relationships with growers all across the country. What I hear all across the board is everybody's just like, I want to help you stay in touch with me. Let's help each other. And uh, that has been absolutely the case. I've reached out to so many growers for help. They've reached out to me. We bounce ideas back and forth with each other. And it's extremely collaborative. I mean, cannabis is a, even though it's growing and stuff, um, it is still, especially within states, it's a small industry. Um, and people talk and people know about other people's moves and all the mergers and acquisitions and stuff. It's extremely collaborative on the grower level. Maybe it's not on the kind of like the big money investor side of things, you know, signing NDAs and whatever. But at the end of the day, actually, one of my favorite quotes, and I'm going to cite this to Michael Timmons from Cornell. He's an aquaculture professor. He said, uh, there are no egos or there are no secrets in aquaculture, only egos. And that applies so cleanly to cannabis. So there are no secrets in cannabis, uh, only egos. And yeah, I mean, we're cannabis yeah. isn't really doing anything special. There's no secret sauce. It's all just basic horticulture and basic HVAC and basic computer controls. It's just a lot of stuff, but none of it is, there's nothing proprietary that anybody's doing out there uh, from a growing perspective. So yeah, people just have been really cool at helping each other solve problems. And that has been what I've found. That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. And and I have found that that I have found that same thing within the, the cannabis industry that exactly the same experience that people said it was going to be really, you know, secretive. And as you know, growers are sort of coming out of the closet out of their basements and you know, that, that they aren't going to want to share their secret sauce and how they do things. I've, I've sort of found it the opposite and, and that there's even grower communities locally and regionally um, of growers who, like you were saying, call each other up and say, Hey, I have this problem. Like how did you solve this? I even um, visited some growers in Arizona and one of them, I can't remember what pest they had. And he knew I was going to another facility and he said, you should go there first and then come to our facility because we don't want to contaminate them. And I was like, oh my God, like, that's so nice. You know, like the the opposite of sabotage. (laughs) 
That's super wild. Okay. Yeah, I thought that was cool. So I'm glad you've had you're having that same experience of of collaboration in the cannabis industry. Yeah, I 99% of the people I meet uh, that are other growers are just like nerds and excited and they love the plant or yeah, it's been all great people. Very few like shysters or secretive folks. Yeah. And they're probably no pun intended, weeding themselves out by not collaborating. That was a, that was a pretty good one. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so how do you predict the industry is going to evolve over the next five or 10 years? I think that the industry, uh, I mean, a, a huge amount of it lies on like regulation and what it looks like. And, you know, there's some pending bills, the SAFE yeah. Act and some other uh, Republican led stuff. Uh, I won't talk to that stuff. But the patterns, kind of regardless of that, are pretty clear overall, not just in the um, equipment vendors and stuff, but in like the multi-state operators and within states there, it is consolidation, consolidation, consolidation. So you had all of these grows pop up, 90% of them had no idea what to do, how to run a facility at scale, and then had to be bought. And now we see just bigger fish eating up all these small ones. Um, and so we see an enormous amount of consolidation with licenses. And so five, 10 years, I think that there's going to be a handful of large multi-state operators that are controlling most of the markets. Whether those are in great facilities, great world-class facilities is to be seen. And then kind of going back to the question of growing indoor, um, as soon as you know, we can trade between states and having inter- interstate commerce, yeah. that's going to change everything. Um, that's when the outdoor is going to become really popular and prices are going to plummet and indoor growing is going to become a, a boutique thing. You when think you the, can still achieve the same quality and, and, and pass lab tests growing outdoors? Um, same quality, no. No, there's a marked quality difference and consistency difference, but you know, exponentially lower CapEx and OpEx and, and all this stuff. And you can use things like tractors. And uh, it's going to really depend on what lab testing looks like. If, you, if I'm in uh, Mississippi and I can sell to Arkansas, is the Mississippi lab testing it? Is Arkansas lab oh testing it? Is there a lab testing it? Who knows? I, I don't know what this is, what that's going to look like, but I know that that's a big thing that a lot of people in the industry are kind of fearing when they set up these, you know, eight figure facilities that have these robust security systems that aren't maybe required in Oregon or another state and can't compete because of the infrastructure and stuff. So I see a lot of consolidation, more outdoor growing just to fill the market with affordable product, I think is going to be um, really big. On, on my wish list, I haven't necessarily seen this, but is more purpose-built HVAC. You know, you and I have spent a lot of time talking about that. And uh, I had, based on my own experience with growing and then hearing clients' experience and my colleagues' experience with other facilities and other companies, HVAC programming and controls are not there. We were just joking about failed compressors and it seems like everybody in every facility is having disastrous issues all the time over failed compressors, which costs an arm and a leg just for the compressor themselves and the labor is crazy. So 
I'm really hoping for better controls on HVAC and a better understanding on how to actually control these environments. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're lacking in automation. Uh, automation's way far behind and, uh, you know, in orchid houses and um, a lot of floor culture, they use so many robots, lettuce, um, that's gonna, that's all getting automated. You look at, you know, the Bowery out in, uh, on the East coast. And, um, I know you've got some big automated lettuce farms out on the West coast and cannabis is going to have to move towards that way. And that's not just environmental automation. It's automating, spacing out the plants and moving them. And hopefully when we get the genetics down, it means automating, um, the defoliation of the plants. Do you think then, that that's uh, one of the sort of barriers to automation is the diversity of genetics uh, in cannabis? A hundred percent. That is a hundred percent. I have talked with so many people about that, about, well, why can't you just get a machine to defoliate or prune these plants? Uh, because every single genetic is totally different. Nobody grows the same genetics. Nobody has the same phenotypes. It's, they're so variable. It's all over the place. It's like, um, it's like trying to model the ocean, you know, with the, it just doesn't work. <laughs> well, I think those are all great visions for the future. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. All right. So last, last official question. What do plants crave? Hands with gloves. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> they love, love it. it so much. <laughs> kid gloves right yeah take care of them well i'm gonna wrap this up with three rapid fire questions that i did not send to you so these are you not prepared or you could not prepare for these questions but they're meant to be fun you know one or two sentences all right number one are plants introverts or extroverts Oh, wow. That, I feel like I'm in like a behavioral interview with that one. Gosh, <laughs> I would say that uh, plants are introverts because the more that they're around people, they get more energized when they're not around people. And I think that that's the definition of an introvert is you, you yeah, get more you, energized. You by time. Yeah. I mean, technically that's true because they are autotrophs. They produce their own energy. Yeah, and when so you biologically, touch them, you yeah, yeah, see exactly, yeah, they, they don't get energy from us. <laughs> and when you touch them and stuff, they get they get pretty sad for a little while after you prune and defoliate them, but then they, they back up when they get alone time. Yeah. Okay. All right. So plants are introverts. Um, can cannabis create a more sustainable world? Oh, that's a cool question. Yes, and I I will say specifically why, because before cannabis, we didn't have the amount of capital funding into the horticulture industry to improve um, things like, like where was LED lighting going before cannabis? It wasn't going anywhere, um, <laughs> you know? Uh, so more efficient lighting, um, more efficient HVAC systems, more efficient growing. If we run into issues with, with water, that research and that technology will be there. So what cannabis has really done has it's added uh, buckets of gasoline into this like creative and R&D engine for the horticulture industry. And it's gonna uh, really foster a lot of technological improvements that I believe would not have happened otherwise. So regardless of what people think about cannabis and stuff, it's got a really indirect benefit of benefiting the horticulture industry as a whole. 
Totally agree. All right, third and final question. What would be the conversion rate of tilapia if they ate one pound of cannabis? And what if they turned around and ate a pound of pizza? Would the conversion rate be the same? Um, at first, I thought that I was going to have to pull out my my calculator and like do some like, uh, <laughs> it's like you're putting me on the spot with more science that I don't remember. <laughs> if, they, if they ate a pound of cannabis versus a pound of pizza, I think tilapia would actually prefer the, the cannabis actually. Yeah, because you're talking about like, uh, one pound of food equals one pound of cannabis, a one-to-one -one conversion factor. Yeah. Remarkable fact about tilapia. Um, no, it would be, it would actually be better with the pizza because it's got more of your macronutrients and stuff like that. If you feed uh, tilapia, just plant material without like that protein and stuff like that, they, they can actually tend to lose weight. So when people were feeding, uh, like their plants, their uh, tilapia, um, I don't remember, but it, what is it? I said, oh, not, you're not talking about algae. Uh, watercress or oh, something. Oh. Yeah, they would like okay. grow that and feed it to their fish. A lot of people are actually finding their tilapia were losing weight because they were pretty nutrient deficient because it didn't have what they need. So I would guess that the pizza would offer the tilapia a lot more nutrients than the cannabis would. And the food conversion ratio would be better with pizza okay which would taste better food. oh the pizza <laughs> i love pizza too yeah <laughs> so maybe we consume the pound of uh cannabis and then consume the the tilapia that ate the pizza i don't know that i want to consume yeah. a pound of cannabis that's too much but still <laughs> it would take a long long time <laughs> <laughs> well awesome that was uh exactly i mean I, I don't know what i expected for the answer but i feel like that was exactly the right answer <laughs> well i think we actually figured it out in the correct way so i'm pretty happy about that yeah i like it it is very interesting that tilapia has a conversion ratio of one though that seems pretty amazing yeah and uh you know i haven't personally tested that out that's that metrics kind of I mean, it, it's actually, I have tested out because I have grown tilapia and measured the amount of food that I gave them, but it's, yeah. All right. It, it's just a cool thing. Yeah. It is. It is. All right. Well, uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for the conversation today. I learned a lot. This was really interesting and informative. I think our listeners are going to really in enjoy this uh, session as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you again. Yeah, no, thanks for inviting me. Uh, this was really fun. Uh, like I said, I don't get to talk aquaponics uh, every day. So anytime that I can talk about fish, I'm happy to. And uh, Nadia, it's always great talking with you. Um, definitely one of the leaders of the industry and we can have great conversations. So I, I really appreciate this. Awesome. All right, well, have a great rest of your day and we will talk soon. Yeah, and, uh, and happy Hanukkah, by the way. Awesome, happy Hanukkah. That was Dr. Nadia Saba with Jeremy Schechter of Bickle Consulting for our podcast, What Plants Crave. Tune in next week. We'll be talking to Travis Higginbotham of Harborside Incorporated. I'm Dana Swadan, and this has been The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Thank you for listening.